follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. And pancreatic cancer has one of the lowest five-year survival rates of all cancers. Uh, despite these facts and figures, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and other hard-to-beat cancers, uh, the liver, the esophagus, stomach, ovary, have historically been given the lowest amount of government research funding. A new piece of legislation called the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act, signed into law in January, aims to change that. Uh, Today we are joined by two guests to talk more about how this legislation came to be and what it means for cancer research. We have with us Megan Gordon-Don, Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, a national organization whose mission is to create hope in a comprehensive way through research, patient support, community outreach, and advocacy for a cure. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Great. Thank you for having me. We also have Dr. Jim Dougherty, Medical and Scientific Advisor for the Lung Cancer Research Foundation, whose mission is to support national research studies and activities focusing focusing on developing innovative strategies for better treatments, screening, and prevention of all cancers of the lung. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Jim Dougherty. Thank you, Kim. So I want to start, um, Megan, let's talk about the title of this act. The Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act does not really roll off the tongue. I think (laughs) recalcitrant is one of those sort of big SAT words. (laughs) Um, Let's start by talking about, you know, what that word recalcitrant means and and how, how that was used in the name and why it was framed in that way. Sure. So recalcitrant cancers are defined in the legislation as those of a five-year relative five-year relative survival rate below 50%. Um, And that term really comes from it. it, It's also referred to as deadly cancers. And that term really comes from the fact that in 1971, when the war on cancer was first declared, the overall five-year relative survival rate for all cancers was about 50%. Mm -hmm. And it's now 68%. 
Okay. So we have a number of cancers, and in fact, um, there are a variety of cancers that fall within this de- definition that um, haven't met that 50% mark yet. So that's where the term comes from. So tough to tough to treat, tough to beat is what we're exactly. talking about here. Okay, okay. So um, Jim, lung and um, pancreatic cancers are two cancers identified as recalcitrant, tough to treat, tough to beat. Right? Why um, why are the survival rates for these cancers so low? I think one of the reasons, Kim, that's really becoming more apparent is as we become more educated about what exactly is the the mechanisms behind these cancers, it's very clear that for cancers like pancreatic and lung, there's a large, long list growing of different mechanisms that really um, are are responsible for these cancers growing and being certainly resistant to common therapies, and most importantly, um, having a tendency to spread beyond their local area fairly rapidly. So I think we're, we're hit with a number of challenges. The most important takeaway, I think, as we start in a more modern way to think about cancers like lung and pancreas, that there are actually many, many different subtypes underneath one term. And that's really the challenge, but more importantly, it's really the, the ray of, of hope that we're beginning to see as we learn more about the biology behind these cancers. I do think we're going to be much more successful in approaching their treatment and hopefully in curing um, more patients with these cancers. Got it, got it. Um, Megan, we know uh, there's a disparity in government research funding across different tumor types. Um, What kinds of factors come into play to determine where the government spends Cancer research dollars. I know that's a big. Uh, I know that's a big question, and maybe maybe multifaceted. You know, but let's start to break it down. We're talking about you know t- these hard hard to treat, hard to beat cancers. These you know cancer killers, and um, yet we're not seeing a commensurate amount of of funding spent on the research. Sure, I think that's a very interesting question, and obviously there are a lot of factors that play into this issue. The reality is that we've seen when an advocacy movement takes shape around a a disease, we've seen that the the attention leads to action. And there's been a significant amount of funding that's gone into HIV-AIDS, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and we've seen real changes in how those diseases are treated and the survival rates for patients. And so that's really what we're trying to focus on for diseases like pancreatic and lung to make a true difference in, in the options that are available for patients. You know, today there are, in the last 10 years, there have been approximately seven new drugs that have been approved for breast cancer and only one for pancreatic. And that's something we're trying to change. So you're saying that there is a direct link between the advocacy movement, which leads to government funding, which leads to increase in survival rates. I think there's definitely a correlation. Um, I think obviously we know that when you draw attention to something that attracts more researchers, attracting more researchers, attracts more dollars, it's it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg, too. Mm-hmm. We know mm-hmm. the researchers will tell us we only want to get involved in something where we know that there are research dollars, um, and we've heard from the NIH before that we have to make sure there are a number of researchers who are interested in a field before they can raise the dollars. So, so Megan, we've heard that. Is it true that pancreatic deaths are actually um, on the rise? Is that true? Absolutely. Pancreatic so, cancer is actually one of the few cancers that is seeing an increase in death rates. 
Yeah, I know for most other cancer types, you know, death rates are expected to decline or or perhaps stay the same by 2020. So what why why is this anticipated? Pancreatic cancer, the, we don't have an early detection tool, we don't have effective treatments, and we do have some of these tools for some of the other cancers, and the incidence and the death rates for the other cancers are going down. So pancreatic cancer is currently the fourth leading cause of cancer-related death as the death rates continue to decline for breast cancer, for lung cancer, for colon cancer, um, and prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer continues to increase, and, and that will propel us, we believe, to be the second leading cause of cancer-related death in the year 2020. So can we talk, uh, Jim and Megan, for for a, a minute about, I just want to talk for a minute about the, the screening issue that you started to raise, um, Megan, that, that there is no screening uh, for for um, pancreatic cancer. To what extent do we know, you know, historically about the emergence of, uh, you know, of screening and how that impacts uh, survival rates, death rates? Where are we with a with a screening for pancreatic cancer, Megan? Let me start with you, and then Jim. Maybe we can talk about what kind of progress we're making around screening for lung cancer, and if we, um, you know, anticipate that that's going to impact survival. So I wish that I could say that an early detection test for pancreatic cancer was around the corner, but unfortunately, there really isn't something that's out there quite yet. There's a lot of research in that field, and we're certainly hopeful that something emerges. But the reality is, even if something came online tomorrow, we wouldn't have the treatment tools to increase the survival rates. So we really need research in both early detection and treatment. And where where are we going with 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 treatment, Megan? Is there are there some promising things in the pipeline? Are we are we seeing improvements? Are we seeing more treatment options for pancreatic? We're definitely seeing more interest by researchers in this field, mm-hmm. and so you know there really aren't, as I said, there there aren't new treatments that are online as of today. But we're hopeful that the new research that's out there, you know, some of it looks very promising, and we're hopeful that there will be new treatment options in the relatively near future, particularly if we're able to get this bill implemented correctly and and get more interest in the disease. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, lung cancer, where are we? uh, Where are we on screening uh, for lung cancer and and sort of screening guidelines around lung cancer? And and are we seeing any correlation between improvements in screening and decrease in, in death rates? I think, you know, to, to start with the death rate, the, the lung cancer story is also not necessarily the most optimistic in terms of mm. capturing patients at an earlier stage of disease. I think it's, it's certainly an interesting um, fact, though, that if you look at the last 20 years, there's changes in the kinds of patients who are getting lung cancer. You know, it used to be classically thought of as a smoker's disease. There's now certainly as smoking rates decline, not necessarily a decline as well in overall lung cancer rates. And that means that more non-smokers are getting diagnosed with lung cancer um, in, in the last couple of years than we've ever seen. There's also a shift for, for uh, reasons that aren't well understood yet in more women um, getting diagnosed with lung cancer than we've seen in the past. So there, there's always in, in looking at cancers and how they come about and what we do about it, um, sometimes subtle, not not sometimes so subtle changes in how our population is is demonstrating um, who's who's a candidate or who's at risk for this cancer that might not have been one in the past. 
And, and to understand that then drives the best way to screen. For lung cancer, there's certainly evidence now that for patients who are very high risk for lung cancer, it is a good idea to consider doing a regular series of CAT scans with the, with the findings now that for those very high risk patients, um, it's likely that CAT scans will, will be able to detect lung cancer at an earlier stage than if we just waited for symptoms to appear. But unfortunately, for the greatest population, of Americans um, who are not necessarily at high risk, there still is no effective overall screening um, tool for lung cancer. So like pancreas, there's lots of efforts and interesting ideas. The holy grail is to find some type of blood test or sputum test for lung cancer that could identify um, a high number of people at risk, and we're working on that, but we're not that close yet to that point. To that point, to that point, and such a lung in particular, such a significant uh, incidence um, of lung cancer in this country. So hopefully that research will continue because I think it uh, it certainly could make a significant impact on um, survival, uh, you know, when it comes to lung cancer and all cancers. We know that, uh, that the, you know, key to, to good treatment, the key to cure is certainly early diagnosis. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking today uh, about something called the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act. It's a new piece of legislation uh, that was signed into law in January, and uh, it, it aims to change how we are looking at hard-to-treat, hard-to-beat cancers, lung, pancreatic, liver, esophagus, stomach, ovary. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We have lots to talk about. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. 
Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today we're talking about a new law called the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act that promises to increase research opportunities for cancer with high death rates. Um, Megan, let me go back to you. Could you spell out, uh, give us a little bit more history about this Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act? How did it come about? Who have the key, uh, you know, key players been? And what are the implications of this act? What does the law say? will happen uh, with research for these types of cancers. What is our hope through this legislation? Sure. Our our hope for the legislation is that it will move the field of recalcitrant cancers or deadly cancers forward. And the goal of the legislation was always to create a strategic plan for the diseases. It started out as a bill focused on pancreatic cancer and was originally called the Pancreatic Cancer Research and Education Act. And the bill, the original bill, would have created a strategic plan for pancreatic cancer um, as it moved through Congress, and it, it was a five-year effort, so it moved across several conference, Congresses. Um, it morphed into the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act and really took the basic premise of the legislation and expanded it out to all deadly cancers. So under the bill, um, the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, has to start by, develop a, by developing a scientific framework or strategic plan for pancreatic and lung cancer. And then the NCI director has the discretion to expand it out into other deadly cancers, and we certainly hope that they do that. Um, and the bill was originally started in 2008 when our scientific advisory board, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network Scientific Advisory Board, sat down and thought about what do we really need to move the field of pancreatic cancer research forward? What are the tools and resources that we would need to put forward to move this disease forward? And the result of that was a, a, a report called the National Plan to Advance Pancreatic Cancer Research. And that started as the basis of the bill. And that report was picked up and turned into legislation by Congresswoman Anna Eshoo um, and later Senator Sheldon Whitehouse um, and Jenny Brown Waite, who was a congressman from Florida, a Republican congresswoman, who was the original Republican lead sponsor. And then when she retired, um, Congressman Leonard Lance took over for her as the lead Republican. From New Jersey. Yep. And so, so this was um, this was an effort that was hatched by your group, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. You've been advocating, uh, you've been advocating for this change. So tell me how the 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 uh, the partnership in in lung cancer emerged, Megan. I think we've had a long partnership with with lung cancer groups, um, given that pan- the pancreatic and lung cancer are two of the deadliest cancers in this nation. 
Um, and we actually run a coalition called the Deadly Cancer Coalition, and there are lung cancer groups who are um, members of that coalition. And so this idea about a strategic plan is something that we had talked about for a long time. It actually wasn't our decision or, or the lung cancer group's decision to um, focus the initial efforts of the bill on pancreatic and lung cancer. That was something that Congress dictated. So that was so, something they came up with. So, Megan, you talk about a you talk about a strategic plan, but is there actually through this act? Is there money? Is there muscle behind getting that plan um, implemented so that the research can move forward? Well, first and foremost, we need the strategic plan. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a larger issue, obviously, with the budget environment that we're in, and making sure that NIH and NCI has the resources necessary to not only move forward with the research they already have planned in diseases like pancreatic and lung cancer, but also to implement things that come out of these strategic plans. And that's something that we are acutely aware of and very dedicated to, to trying and, and advocating for additional resources for NIH and NCI. Sequestration is very much in play, and, and sequestration will have um, really detrimental effects on diseases like pancreatic and lung cancer and the research that we need to do in these diseases. And why don't you, uh, you know, again, another, another good SAT word, can you just, uh, for our listeners, just uh, maybe remind folks of what, uh, of what sequestration is and, and what it is uh, meaning for, uh, uh, for the research, Megan. And then, uh, Jim, I, I, I want to turn to how we, we see this legislation potentially improving the lung cancer research. But let's just, you know, let's just break down that sequestration issue, Megan, and how we think it's affecting research and NCI funding. Sure. So sequestration is a process that Congress came up with that essentially stops or, or cuts off some funding that had already been allocated. So it was an across-the-board cut to many programs, including the National Institutes of Health and National Cancer Institute. And what it means is that grants that were already promised, that were already allocated, have to be scaled back to some degree. And it means that the NCIs they're currently thinking about new grants that they might be able to fund have to scale back those things as well. Um, so it really is a huge problem for diseases like pancreatic and lung cancer where new research is so critical if we can't even do the, if our researchers can't do the research that they are already planning on doing to the level that they were planning on doing, and if we can't encourage new researchers in the field, that, that poses huge problems. So, Jim, let's, let's break down the legislation a little bit more. How do you see the legislation improving research? Let's talk a little bit more about um, this strategic planning process. Can you break that down for, for us a little bit? What do we... Um, what, what are some of the things that we might, for example, see in, uh, you know, in a strategic plan that we would hope to see implemented? Sure. I think, I, I think having a strategy around research is, is really critical these days. And I think, as Megan said, everybody's feeling the, the pressure on, on how much funding we have for, for research, no matter what kind of cancer, and, and certainly how to coordinate that research across all the different stakeholders, which certainly, you know, involve advocates. It certainly involves current patients, families of patients, academic institutions, the NIH, the NCI, drug companies, the FDA, and certainly, 
you know, care providers and, 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 and large hospitals and institutions. So it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated universe. And I think the old model was for everyone to take a chunk of, of action and, and do their best at it and hope that everything would come together and, and, and make sense. Nowadays, we feel a, a much, uh, I think, stronger commitment to, again, without using the word strategic too often, but really put strategy around where we're going and to get folks to actually work alongside, not on top of each other. And it's, it's already demonstrated great benefit, I think, in diseases like prostate and breast cancer, and it's really important that we continue to bring that view across, um, particularly, you know, very um, uh, important tumors like lung and pancreas where we haven't made the strides that that we'd like to. So in a nutshell, it means people working alongside each other. It means on the federal side, agencies like the FDA beginning to take an active role in the kinds of research the NIH and the NCI sponsor um, and, and the funding that goes out to academic institutions, whether large or small, and really down a whole value chain of stakeholders that in the end um, hopefully will make the most progress dollar for dollar um, in this new model of really doing it in a coordinated fashion. So, Jim, you're, you're, you're uh, obviously, you know, talking to some extent about greater uh, communication, sharing, collaboration uh, in, in these various communities. How do, uh, you know, so we know that there are a lot of academic institutions um, that are doing research that, you know, some of it is proprietary and, you know, looking to make some of these big discoveries. We know that the, you know, pharmaceutical and biotech companies are doing a lot of research and that's their, their stock and trade are these kind of discoveries and uh, also proprietary there. How, how does an academic center or, or let's say a biotech company, you know, how do they balance the, um, the broader, uh, you know, kind of human interest of advancing research with their own sort of proprietary and profit interest of making discoveries and, and, and bringing treatments to market? How do you, in this conversation, you know, what, 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 what's the balance there? I know it's a, kind of a big question. Yeah, I, I'll tackle part of it first, and that's certainly speaking from the academic side. I, I think there, you know, the, the legacy of, of discoveries and inventions and moving cancer um, therapy forward is pretty solid at this point with, with decades of evidence that, you know, the, the, the academic community does work well together. I mean, in the end, discoveries are published. That's the way people become successful in academics, so the communication is certainly an area that's traditionally been part of the system, but even in the last couple of years has certainly been, I think, accelerated by efforts to, uh, for instance, share discoveries at an earlier stage than they used to, to put them out in, a, in publications or on the Internet in ways that are free and not something that you have to wait and pay for a journal to read about. And I think the community of cancer discovery is certainly um, accelerating the ability to communicate, not just within our country, but around the world, because there's really truly a, a global expansion of knowledge around uh, cancer and, and how to understand its science and, more importantly, how to come up with new therapies for it. When you cross the line over into the, the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, um, equally so, there's no question that many of the most exciting new cancer drugs originated in academic medicine and often originated um, from support from both foundations as well as the federal government and, and other sources. 
and that's how pipelines get filled with drugs that will one day be commercial and get to the greatest number of patients possible. And the way they get there is through a very traditional system of running clinical trials that need both the cooperation and collaboration of academic centers, the government, industry. So it's always been uh, somewhat of a, a shared responsibility, and I think that uh, pressure on everyone to take the dollars we have to get the best use and to make discovery as fast as possible is stronger than ever right now. So I, I see the paradigm not broken, but actually improving um, hmm. as we go forward with, with the excitement around understanding the biology of cancer more clearly than we ever have. Mm, interesting, interesting. Um, Megan, we've only got a, a minute till our break here, but um, the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act, is this a big win? Uh, is there still a lot of work to be done on this? You know, should we consider this a victory? I think it's absolutely a victory. We've already seen some progress as a result of the statute. There was a meeting um, that the NCI had, and they've now issued a report from that meeting that will form the basis of the strategic plan that they're developing. And the report had four initiatives that the NCI is going to pursue for, or the NCI believes are important to pursue for pancreatic cancer. And two of those initiatives that are already underway. One is focusing on KRAS, which plays a critical role in nearly all pancreatic cancer tumors. And the second was a joint meeting between the NCI and the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. Um, and pan the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network helps support that meeting, um, mm -hmm. and that's to look at the connection between pancreatic cancer and diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so those, those two initiatives are already underway, and, and we believe that there will be a lot more good work coming out of this. Outstanding. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We are talking about um, a new piece of legislation, the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act. It was signed into law in January, and it aims to change our ability to deal with uh, deadly cancers, hard-to-beat cancers. Um, we've got to take a quick break here. This is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 
5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. cancer. I'm Kim Tebel, though today we're talking about a new law called the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act, and we've been having a great conversation about uh, the importance of this act in addressing uh, hard-to-beat, hard-to-treat cancers, deadly cancers like lung cancer, like pancreatic uh, cancer. Megan, um, now that your organization has witnessed this major success and we do consider uh, this a victory and you've played such an important role in it for many years, really staying committed to uh, uh, to getting this passed, um, just talk a little bit, and especially for those who are just joining us, um, t- talk a little bit uh, about you know, what we expect uh, from this new law, from this new act, what we expect, how we expect uh, some of this to be um, I- implemented, and, you know, what, what's kind of the next big focus, uh, legislative or policy focus for you guys as an organization? Sure. So the National Cancer Institute will be developing a report um, that's really the strategic plan of scientific framework that's required by the statute, and that strategic plan is going to help the pancreatic cancer research community and the lung cancer research community really focus on what are the initiatives that we should be focusing on for research. And some of that will be public-private partnerships between groups like the Pancreatic Cancer Research, um, Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, um, or GEMS Group, and others. Um, And that's really going to be a, a critical focus for, I think, all of us on how we can work together, how we can fill the gaps, and how we can move forward in this disease. Um, The reality is that when the report comes out, when the strategic plan comes out, unless we have more funding going into the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, it's going to be hard to implement a lot of these things. And so that's really why we're focused right now on trying to tell Congress that they've got to find a way to stop the sequestration process and get more money to the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute. Medical research is critical to this nation's economy. It's critical to ensuring that we can beat diseases and treat diseases like pancreatic and lung cancer, and we really need additional resources to be able to do that. And so that's really our critical focus right now. So what are you doing to try to end sequestration and put some of that funding back in place at NIH and NCI? We're calling on our phenomenal grassroots advocacy network, um, <laughs> who was really instrumental in getting this bill passed. Um, you know, I should mention there were over 10,000 bills that were introduced in the 112th Congress. Only 2% of those were passed, and this was one of them. Wow. And it's really, I think, a testament to our grassroots and, and to the lung cancer community and others who were able to 
to get this bill passed and, and get all their members of Congress to support it. Um, and this is really going to be, you know, we're focused, we're asking our grassroots network to now focus on this, and they're asking their members of Congress to make floor speeches about this, um, to talk to their leadership, to really make sure that the word is getting out there that this is a critical issue. Sequestration and funding for medical research are things that we have to support, or, or sequestration is something we have to end, and medical research is something that we have to support. Our tagline right now is save the medical research that saves lives, and we really believe that that's critical. Uh, Jim, on the lung cancer um, front, Give us a little bit of a brief update on what we're seeing right now in lung cancer research. What kind of advances are we seeing? Where do you see lung cancer research going in, let's say, the next, uh, you know, next 10 years? What, what can we expect from, the, the, you know, from research and from treatment? Well, I think lung cancer really represents almost the poster child of, of thinking about cancer biologically and, and really the... the the reality that's happened in literally the last couple of years is that most newly diagnosed lung cancer patients are, are literally characterized by the results of what kinds of, of biomarkers or almost fingerprints exist on their cells. So I think both clinically um, as well, certainly from the research side, we, we think of lung cancer now on a very um, specific basis that's really on an individual person-by-person -person basis. And, in the last year or two, for instance, a new drug's been approved for lung cancer that's very, very specific for whether you have a marker or not on your lung cancer cells and whether we think that drug is the right match for that patient. So it's really beginning to personalize the treatment of cancer in a way that I, I think should lead to better success in not only helping patients with lung cancer live longer, but also increase the potential of, of patients who can be cured with lung cancer. Now, to get to that point and to keep it growing, um, I think, as Megan said, the, the real risk here is that research support begins to falter or disappear. And one of the worries people from particularly the academic medical community have around current decreases in research from both the NIH and the NCI is that it certainly doesn't encourage taking very risky experiments into the lab. It's easier now to get a renewal for your federal grant than it is to ask a brand new question that could be extremely important. So there's also a worry that we're not going to be as innovative as we, we want to be for really the, the sake of being um, a little bit less um, sure that you're going to get your research funded or not. So it really is a critical time to keep an eye on where's the research dollars coming from and how do they get apportioned. This is not a time to become conservative in how we think about cancer research. Mm. Jim, I just want to take another minute on the um, on the issue of the biomarkers that you uh, that you mentioned. So, to you know, what 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 percentage of patients are being tested for these biomarkers? How you know what is the biomarker test? Is it a blood test? Is it you know? I really want our listeners to kind of understand the, the personalized medicine that you're talking about and the importance of biomarkers in in lung cancer and in other cancers. Can you just take another minute or two to talk about that? Sure. I mean, traditionally, the way this is done is by literally taking a piece of the biopsy material that establishes a diagnosis of lung cancer and then evaluating that tissue in um, almost, again, the equivalent of thinking about, you know, how to find someone's fingerprint. You, you literally take apart the, the tumor cells and 
um, look for certain enzymes and other markers that will indicate to the clinician the likelihood that this person's lung cancer carries a specific either genetic change or mutation or carries a certain attribute that we now know is likely to lead to certain classes of medicines that may work better than others. It's always been a dream that we could do this, but it's certainly becoming more realistically possible. I mean, you can think about that and talk about it, but unless we had drugs that would effectively match those kinds of biomarkers, it was mm -hmm. pretty hypothetical, and we've crossed that line now. So I would think the majority of current patients getting diagnosed with lung cancer are, in fact, getting some type of biomarker characterization of, of their cells at this point. Uh, I want to turn to one more um, issue that I know is on a lot of people's minds when it comes to lung cancer, Jim, and that is the issue of stigma, uh, that there is a lot of stigma associated with, uh, with lung cancer. We do know of a high, the high correlation between smoking and, and, and lung cancer and sometimes an, an attitude of stigma and shame that folks kind of, kind of brought it on themselves from, from smoking, uh, you know, for all those years. What's your take, Jim, on, on how the, you know, public's attitudes about lung cancer and, and perhaps that, that cause effect, that smoking correlation, you know, how do the public's attitudes, you know, sort of reveal themselves when it comes to money, when it comes to funding for lung cancer research? Is this a topic that comes up in these conversations? Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a regular topic of conversation, and it's real. I mean, the stigma of, of patients who are smokers and get lung cancer is certainly you know, a, a pretty established fact at this point, and foundations like ours have certainly supported research around studying whether that's in fact the case, and more importantly, um, assuming that it is, really addressing the issue of how patients, in fact, get access to appropriate care in that setting. Um, it's also pretty surprising that some of the stigma is, is certainly affecting patients who get a diagnosis of lung cancer and yet have never been a smoker, and as I said earlier, there are more non-smokers than ever being diagnosed with lung cancer. So it's unfortunate in that it, it, it fits all lung cancer patients to some point sooner or later, and yet it's not even relevant to increasingly the majority of those patients. Um, from a research and funding point of view, you know, it's certainly always been a concern and an undercurrent of worry that, you know, it's, it's not then going to drive um, the right kinds of dollars to research, but I think that's less of a fact than it used to be. But it's still, nevertheless, an issue um, that is socially certainly integrated into patients who get the diagnosis of lung cancer and an issue that, that hopefully is, is getting less, but it's still um, unfortunately a, a current issue. It's, it's, it's fascinating. We could probably do a whole show just on that, uh, on that topic alone. Um, Megan, as we get towards our break here, um, so, you know, we're talking about pancreatic, we're talking about lung, but there are obviously a lot of hard-to-treat, hard hard-to-beat cancers, deadly cancers. Um, we've talked about liver cancer, esophageal cancer, stomach cancer, ovarian cancer. Um, you know, these cancers are impacting a lot of patients, a lot of uh, caregivers, uh, family members. If somebody wants to get more involved, if they want to be an advocate, if they want to speak out to, to end sequestration, if they want to become an advocate for more funding and attention to these issues, just through even through your experience with the pancreatic Cancer Action Network. How important is that consumer voice, and what are some ways that people can get involved and make their voices heard? The patient voice is critical to this. It's critical to any effort, um, and particularly in our efforts to get the bill passed, to get more money for NIH and NCI. 
Um, they're really, it, it's interesting that over half of all cancer deaths are going to be caused by deadly cancers or recalcitrant cancers. So there are a lot of people out there who have been impacted by these cancers, and, and we encourage those people to get involved in advocacy efforts, whether it's through our group um, or other deadly cancer groups. If they're interested in joining the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, our website is www.pancan.org, and we encourage people to visit our website and, and help us in these efforts. Uh, and and um, and really, Megan, find I mean, finding ways to I, I know it's so important for members of Congress really to hear from their own constituents, from folks who are who are living in their uh, in their own uh, communities. Um, just talk about the import you know the importance of that. I know that you know we as advocates and and you know the doctors, the nurses can can go and talk to folks, but there's really nothing like that that patient voice. Absolutely. I, I've been in a lot of congressional meetings um, on my own as a lobbyist with other patients, with researchers, with nurses, and there's a very different type of meeting when a member of Congress is sitting down with a patient or their family members and listening to that very personal story about how a disease has impacted them, and particularly a disease like pancreatic cancer where the five-year survival rate is so mm -hmm. low. That really, it has a visceral impact in so many meetings, and it's an important perspective that members of Congress need to hear that perspective. Yeah. And so yeah. it's really critical for patients and their families to get involved in these efforts. And it makes it very personal. And I, you know, I always find it amazing when we're we're up on the Hill meeting with the, with members of Congress and with their staff. It, you know, inevitably turns to the member or their staff saying, you know, my neighbor, my friend, my Absolutely. cousin, my coworker. You know, it always becomes it always turns, you know, very personal. And everybody can kind of, you know, wrap their wrap their head around this idea of cancer and the impact of cancer on uh, uh, on all of us. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about a new law, the uh, recalcitrant. Cancer Research Act and its effort to um, better address and, and devote more research and strategic planning and effort towards the hard to treat, the deadly, deadliest cancers. Um, we are uh, inching towards the end of our show. We're going to take a quick uh, break here. Don't go away. I just uh, I want you to hear a little bit more about um, uh, Megan and Jim's organizations, the wonderful work that they are doing, and how you can get involved to get information, uh, education, information about clinical trials, and also how you can become an advocate uh, for pancreatic cancer, for uh, lung cancer, and some of the other cancers that we are talking about. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. 
Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're, uh, we're inching uh, towards the end of our show here. We're having a great uh, conversation about a new law called the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act really addressing the, uh, the, the the deadliest cancers, the cancers with the lowest survival rates of, of, of all the cancers. Uh, we have here with us Megan Gordon-Don, Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and Dr. Jim Doherty, Medical and Scientific Advisor for the Lung Cancer uh, Research Foundation. I, wanna, I want our listeners to hear a little bit more about these two wonderful organizations as we inch, uh, inch towards the, uh, the end of our show. Um, Jim, can you tell us a little bit more about how people can get involved in the Lung Cancer Research Foundation? What's your mission? What's the work that you're doing and how can folks uh, learn more? Sure. The, the easiest way to learn more is go to our website, which is lungfund.org, and it's full of information about lung cancer, but more importantly also about the efforts um, and, and the main mission of our foundation, which is really to sponsor the best research across the, the, the many fields of lung cancer issues, um, all the way from ideas towards prevention and detection to certainly um, very active ideas around treatment. We're we're very proud of the research uh, support that we've provided over the years, which really spans from very young investigators in the lab to very senior, well-known researchers at at all kinds of institutions. I think that the key for lung cancer is, you know, certainly throughout everyone's life, that's listening today, we're probably going to bump into someone, whether it's in our own family or even ourselves or someone we know who's, who's had the disease or will get the disease. So it's, it's really an issue that we need to pay close attention to and certainly keep our eyes open and hopefully uh, begin to really recognize and support the success that we're going to have scientifically and clinically with the disease. And that um, website, Jim, is Lung Fund, so L-U-N-G-F-U-N-D dot org, correct? Exactly, yes. Excellent. Um, Megan, a little bit more, um, if, if you would, about the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, uh, a little bit more about the group, how can, what kind of services are provided, how can folks learn more, and how can they become advocates for pancreatic cancer research? Sure. So the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network is a nationwide network of people dedicated to working together to advance research, support patients, and create hope for those affected by pancreatic cancer. 
One of the goals of the organization is to double the survival rate for pancreatic cancer by the year 2020. And that sounds like a big goal to double the, the five-year survival rate. But pancreatic cancer is one of the few cancers with the five-year survival rate still in the single digits. So what we're talking about is to double the survival rate, mean, meaning increase it to about 12%. And that's achievable. We could get there if one new drug came online or we had a new early detection tool. We, there are achievable ways of meeting that goal. And so we encourage all those affected by pancreatic cancer to join our efforts to know the disease, fight it, and end it. And there are a variety of ways that people can get involved. They can become an advocate. They can participate in a local Purple Stride event. Um, they can be a member of our caregiver and survivor network. Um, we really have a lot of options for people. So we encourage people to go to www.pancan.org to learn more. Excellent, excellent. Um, and as we uh, as we get towards the end of the show, I, I just want to ask um, each of you, what, what advice do you have for someone um, who has been newly diagnosed with a very difficult to treat cancer, one of the cancers that we're talking about, um, uh, you know, it seems like it could uh, feel like a very hopeless um, situation, but what are some of the things that folks should think about if they're diagnosed with one of these cancers? How, how should they think about, you know, treatment options, second opinions, clinical trials? I mean, Jim, let me start with you. Uh, just some, some, some thoughts, some advice, some tips for folks diagnosed with lung, with pancreatic, or one, one of these difficult-to-treat cancers. Um, uh, you know, is it a hopeless situation? Well, it's a, it's a great question. It's certainly not hopeless, and I think it's it's really important that if if the diagnosis comes your way, that the first thing you do is step back, take a deep breath, and really focus on the fact that the next uh, couple of days or week or so are really going to be critical in getting information, getting information you understand, making sure that someone's sharing that communication with you. It's tough, and I think everyone who's treated cancer has the experience of recognizing the fact that there's so many emotions happening and so much fear and so much pressure to make decisions that it's, it's a really difficult time. And the more you can get support from someone in your family or a friend, um, the better it is. It's really a time when the more sets of years, the better. On the other hand, you also don't want to fall into the trap of getting so many opinions and so many ideas and so many bits of communication that you sometimes get into a situation where it's impossible to make a decision. So it's always a balancing act, and the best way to get there is to get yourself into the hands of a clinician that you feel comfortable with, that you understand, that takes the time to answer all the questions. And certainly it's a time, I think, where a second opinion is often valuable. And so to, to look towards any one of the many National Cancer Institute-sponsored comprehensive cancer centers in your region uh, to consider getting another opinion at that point. Megan, I'm going to ask you um, the same question, advice that you have for someone who's been diagnosed with one of these difficult-to-treat, uh, difficult-to-treat, difficult-to-cure uh, cancer thoughts, uh, tips, advice for these folks, for these listeners, individuals, family members who are with us today. Sure. So I think Jim's point that you're taking a step back, taking a breath, um, and making sure that you get relevant information over the next few days or early weeks is, is really critical. And the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network has some fantastic services to help patients and their families do just that. 
our patient and liaison services, or PALS program, provides patients and their families with the most current information on the disease, um, on treatment options, clinical trials, which are essential for pancreatic cancer patients to consider, diet, nutrition, symptom management, um, and support resources. So and we also have a caregiver and survivor network that puts patients and their families in touch with those who can share their experiences with pancreatic cancer and offer support. So for patients looking for either of those types of, of resources, we would encourage them to call us at 877-272-6226 or find us on the web at pancan.org. Fantastic. It's great, uh, great advice and great to know that both of your uh, organizations um, exist. I want to thank uh, both of you for joining me today. Megan Gordon-Don, Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network uh, and a longtime friend of, of cancer support community. I encourage you to visit their website at pancan.org to find out more about uh, their, uh, the services that they provide, the information, education, clinical trials, uh, matching, and of course all of the important um, advocacy efforts in which they are involved to um, improve and increase uh, funding for pancreatic cancer research. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Jim Doherty, Medical and Scientific Advisor for the Lung Cancer uh, Research Foundation. Uh, Jim, we're so impressed by the terrific work that you guys are doing, the research that you're funding, the commitment that you're making to not only care and research, but also to this advocacy piece to move legislation forward, to move funding forward. And uh, we encourage you to visit their website as well at lungfund.org. So Pancreatic Cancer Action Network is pancan, P-A-N-C-A-N.org. The Lung Cancer Research Foundation is at lungfund, L-U-N-G, FUND.org. So please, please, please check out both of those websites. You're going to find some amazing information uh, and resources. Um, I want to remind our, our listeners about the services that we provide here at the cancer support community. Um, we have uh, 55 uh, full time centers around the country. There are more than 100 satellite locations that are part of those centers. Uh, we provide free support services to people with all cancers at any stage of illness and for their family members and loved ones as well. We provide support groups, educational programs, ask the doctor programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, uh, free of charge to people with all cancers. We also have a helpline if you uh, don't have a center in your backyard or would rather chat with someone by phone. We have a helpline also staffed by trained licensed counselors. You can call us at 888-793-9355 or you can go to the website cancersupportcommunity.org. We have a very vibrant online community. You can find our centers on that website. You can download um, our educational materials, frankly speaking, about cancer. So a whole host of free services for people with all cancers, including lung and pancreatic cancer. So check us out at cancersupportcommunity.org. I want to thank uh, our guests again for being with us today. I want to thank you uh, for listening to this important conversation. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support 